this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Ronyak about her book, Intimacy, Performance, and the Lead in the Early 19th Century, published by Indiana University Press in 2018. Musicologists have long been fascinated with leader, in part because the genre does not fit neatly into scholarly binaries. Should we categorize leader as art or a popular song? Are they primarily a musical or poetic expression? Is performance at a salon part of the public or private sphere? Ranyak confronts these categories, not by utilizing the traditional approach of analyzing the connections between the music and the text, but by centering performance. She studies a subset of early 19th century leader with texts she identifies as intimate lyric poetry by contextualizing them within German romantic ideas about interiority and the self, while grounding these philosophical considerations in the salon culture of several important German cities. Welcome, Dr. Ronyak. I'm so happy to have you here today to talk about your new book, Intimacy, Performance, and the Lead in the Early 19th Century. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm interested, just right from the start, can we uh, to learn a little bit about how you chose the topic for this book and you know how you came to this project? I actually, uh, there's probably a long history of how I came to the topic of this book that I can shortly summarize. Uh, My background before I went into musicology uh, was in piano with uh, some emphasis on collaborative piano. And while studying at the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati, I had the opportunity uh, to play a lot of art songs, especially German leader, with a number of very excellent singers. Um, And later, as I came into musicology, I came back uh, to the genre. And so what I'd noticed... um, in the academic side of things, in the the literature, was that there wasn't much discussion, actually, of the implications of performance um, for meaning of songs, for context uh, of those meanings, um, for what the special case of performance could bring. And so this uh, led first to my dissertation research and then later uh, to the kind of further fulfillment of these thoughts in this book um, and uh, where I then began to find that uh, performance actually had something to do with this other central idea surrounding leader, which was their essential interiority or intimacy or kind of private character. So you, it's interesting that you came f- to the topic as a performer, because one of the things that you do in this book that makes this book, I think, so different from anything else I've read about leader is that you're really centering the performer 
in this book, as you mentioned in your introduction. Can you talk a little bit about how that emphasis on the lead as a performed um, art form and also, of course, on these performers that you talk about, how does that generate new insights that uh, people don't get who take a more traditional approach to the leader? Um, yes, I, I, I think that that's a, a very central part of my endeavor. Um, and I laid this out, especially in the introduction to the book, um, that through looking specifically at performance in general as an activity, and then specific historical performance contexts, and as you mentioned, some specific singers, performers, um, and other aspects of performance uh, back in this time of the crucible of early romantic lead composition, that uh, the thing about performance is that it can call into question meanings that we might assume to be in a song when we are looking more only at the score or at its genesis from the side of composition. So, for example, traditionally uh, in music theory and musicology, and a bit also in the pedagogy of, of singers, of, of singers and their accompanists um, who study specifically art song, in all of these areas, traditionally, um, the emphasis has been on a kind of, um, first, of course, a, an under, getting an understanding of the poem upon which the song is based. And then second, um, analyzing the form and the smaller musical details of that song or other underlying structural properties that craft a certain reading of that poem and then assuming that reading to be sort of the aggregate meaning of the poem and music together, to be the meaning of the song. Um, but the trouble with that is that any given performance situation um, can either highlight some of those and uh, very much um, cause others to be submerged, or further, depending on the context, can even uh, overwrite them a great deal or make a lot of these details much less relevant than other contextual um, uh, parts of the performance. Um, so in this way, uh, I found it more and more important um, to center performance in my inquiry because I simply feel that this um, kind of word-music uh, relationship study, um, when it stays at the center like that, uh, doesn't tell the whole story. Um, I wanted to uh, talk again, sort of um, one of the uh, relationships to performance that, as a, a I guess, is an outcome of your interest in performance for the book, is that you really ground the book in a very particular um, time and place and repertoire. Um, and uh, so I'm interested to kind of tease out exactly what you are dealing with, because you're certainly not talking about all the leader that were written in the early 19th century, for instance. So can you um, kind of describe the bounds of your subject for me in the sense of like, you know, who are you talking about? What sort of leader and, and where are they uh, where are these uh, people that you are uh, interested in? What, you know, where are they located? What, um, where are they working and, and, and um, interacting? Yes, um, absolutely. What's, what's probably um, a little bit of a, a sneaky trick of this book uh, is, is that I, I talk in general about concepts that are important um, throughout lead composition and performance in the early 19th century, whether that be in uh, the context that I discuss, which I'll explain in a minute, are mostly Berlin and northern and central Germany, or very far southern, um, what is today Germany. There was also a scene in Stuttgart, and then, of course, uh, Austria, uh, especially Vienna. 
Um, and when people think of this period, they think either the late sort of Enlightenment and songs of Mozart and Beethoven, or they think of um, Schubert's songs, of course, um, which are uh, very important um, towards the end of this period. Um, this book, however, doesn't focus, for example, on Vienna as a main context. Um, it focuses as a total social and performative context on um, Berlin uh, and uh, Weimar and Leipzig and a number of other um, you know, kind of smaller reports from that area, um, primarily because of the literary anchors that those cities were at the time for both production of literature from people central to romantic literary thought uh, for all of the German-speaking lands during the period, including uh, Goethe uh, in Weimar, uh, Schiller, um, and then a uh, romantic circle uh, surrounding first some cities not that far from Weimar, including Jena, and then especially also salons in Berlin that were receiving a lot of this literature. And by kind of having this literary context guide uh, the, the musical study as well, um, I'm able to look at uh, composers uh, who were closer to these literary figures than, for example, Schubert. Uh, so, for example, in uh, one chapter, I, I discuss very heavily some songs of Carl Friedrich Zelter, who was a close friend of Goethe um, throughout uh, their, most of their entire lives. Um, and then secondly, also uh, amateur performers who were involved in these uh, kind of literary musical scenes um, together. And then lastly, then um, following from that context, uh, public performance situations which uh, involved repertoire being composed uh, in northern central Germany and in Vienna. I do actually talk about a song of Beethoven heavily. Um, and then also, again, had this combined kind of literary influence on the concert sphere. Um, and so um, by kind of following this literary thread, I end up talking about some musical figures who were certainly decently well-known in their time, um, but at the same time, um, you know, aren't always central to the canon today or even the lead canon. Um, you write in your book at one point, sort of towards the beginning, something that I really loved. Uh, you wrote, to sing leader was to engage with romantic ideologies of the self. And I felt like I kept returning to that as I read the book because it became sort of a touchstone for me to understand, a touchstone, I should say, to for me to sort of understand, uh, you know, what you were writing about and the choices you were making. And I really wanted you to expand on that a little bit and talk to me about, you know, what are these romantic ideologies of the self that you're exploring here and how does that impact what you're talking about with the leader? Thanks so much for, for latching on to that thing. It's, such, it's so neat to have someone reading this work that way. Um, yeah, I, um, when I say that, um, first of all, the, the one side of, of that comment is that, um, that even these kind of small, entertaining, you know, not necessarily ideology-laden ideology practices like singing songs, which really should be fun, um, be, because they're so wrapped up in this literary culture, which which communicates these ideologies, really ends up putting people even kind of um, very lightly sometimes in contact with them. And when I refer when I refer to this kind of ideology of the self, um, it is one that is very very filled 
with a particularly kind of German um, notion of innerness or interiority, uh, kind of privileging of, of a depth of the human person and um, the depth of those feelings and also a kind of necessity of protecting those a bit um, from too much publicization of, of uh, too much, um, yeah, sort of trampling upon by outside forces and the kind of dance between then expressing oneself and, um, you know, in a public way and kind of having this depth, having this interiority. Um, in the book, I discuss a few different perspectives on this kind of overall project of German romanticism concerning the self. Um, one is a sort of uh, narrower bent on just what that interiority means and how one can sort of guard it. Uh, and I talk about this in the case, especially of Goethe and the emphasis that he often places in his works in general, and even uh, in the construction of some of his poems on a kind of autonomy, you know, that the, that the, that this, that the real sort of isolation and solitude of the person is really maybe the most important thing. And then on some other figures, uh, including a romantic philosopher and also theologian, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who talks more about uh, the sort of necessary and ideal conditions for uh, selves to kind of sincerely interact with each other in what might be considered a kind of ideal or safe or guarded space of a, of a salon um, or a small social gathering. Um, and then I and even in places where you wouldn't expect to find this anymore, um, kind of in public concert situations where we're not talking anymore about um, what uh, romantic uh, literary thought or philosophy is saying about the self, um, we still see traces of this, I think. Um, what I've identified there is that uh, the kinds of poetic texts that get performed in public also have a way of sort of um, keeping the most private things off the stage uh, in most situations and only allowing the most obviously public things on. Um, so there's, there's generally a kind of accepted idea about um, what is private, uh, what is intimate, where that belongs, why it belongs there, um, why it's to be cherished. And um, so that's something that I come back to over and over in the book. The other term that I guess I don't know a lot about later, so it may be a common term in, in looking at this type of poetry, but I had not heard uh, the term intimate lyric poetry before, which is a term that you use a lot to identify the sorts of um, texts that you're talking about. And um, it is related to what you were just saying about, you know, what was considered appropriate for public and more private performance in, in the salon environment. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how did you um, identify that as opposed to, say, a ballad or some other kind of uh, poetry that was used um, as the lyrics for Leader? Uh, yes, I, I actually found myself needing to invent a term um, to kind of take over some things that have traditionally been thought about lyric poetry, um, especially the kinds often used for Leader, and then to also, like you said, um, set it off from some other common genres of, of poetry that belong also to the, the German song tradition. Um, so I, I use the term intimate lyric poetry um, to refer uh, to um, you know, poems that would be really quite rec recognizable to anyone who knows um, even Schubert's repertoire. 
Uh, for example, uh, Goethe's poem, um, First Loss, uh, Erste Verlust, um, which I discuss in the book um, in a setting by Carl Friedrich Zelter, but uh, Schubert um, also set uh, during his career. And the thing about that poem and others like it is that it has a few uh, qualities. Um, the first thing is you have uh, this, uh, you know, sort of speaker. Sometimes it's a role, but it's very often it's sort of out of nowhere. You don't know who the voice belongs to, um, who is, is speaking directly as a lyric eye and about themselves um, and is at the center of this utterance. Um, the, thing, the second thing is that what's being expressed has the quality of something uh, very personal and very private. Uh, but on the other hand, there are some devices that have to make this work as poetry. So even though it's a very kind of private sentiment, um, it is being expressed um, usually in the poem to um, either an unnamed or kind of an invisible uh, addressee or interlocutor to a beloved who's no longer there, to someone who ought to be hearing. Sometimes there is this device of apostrophe, um, which means sort of speaking to the inanimate or to God or to someone who, who really necessarily isn't going to answer back. Um, and then an additional address uh, to the reader, because um, you, you obviously write poetry with this idea that the reader is also overhearing. And so a poem like that, I designate an intimate lyric poem um, to break it off from other things that are also considered part of the lyric genre. Um, there are lyric poems, for example, um, more recently in the tradition, say in, in uh, the Spanish, the poetry of uh, Federico García Lorca, uh, that uh, have many other characteristics associated with kind of the musicality, the refrain character of lyric poetry, all of those other things, but don't really have a lyric eye at the center um, that you would identify in the same way. Um, and so I want to kind of break it off from that a bit. And then similarly to break it off um, from another major genre of poetry used for leader, which uh, are ballads, either kind of copies of folk ballads that were popular in Romanticism, or um, yeah, or, 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 or other related sort of um, genres which really narrate uh, a story through both narration and then dramatic dialogue. And since those have a kind of very different character, but sometimes the word lyric is attached to them too, I felt it necessary uh, to kind of you know talk about this this lyric uh, poem with the eye at the center that's um, known in Romanticism as an intimate lyric poem. One of the things that um, I liked about the book as well um, is that you return over and over to uh, consideration of gender in one way or another. So you talk about women in terms of the salon culture that you are um, uh, sort of examining as well. And then you have examples of women as composers and also as performers. And I really liked that you didn't just lump all the gender stuff in one in one chapter and move on, right? Instead, it's really a through line <laughs> yeah. through the entire book. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to tease some of that out and talk a little bit about each of the ways that you consider gender um, and, and bring out some of the characters that you uh, consider in this book because they are women that I'm not familiar with. And it was nice to see this really nice... Um, You've got a nice balance between considering the canonical composers and uh, someone like Beethoven, for instance, but also um, introducing the reader um, to some composers and performers that uh, I would imagine that maybe only the 
um, most expert people will have heard of before. So maybe we could start with just, you know, how do women um, and the way that they are part of the um, uh, salon culture, how do they play into this ideology of self that you talk about and, and sort of as part of this salon culture that helped to generate um, the leader at all and that, that sort of performance context? Yes. Um, the, the thing about salons in this period, and it's a long uh, tradition um, beginning more in France um, than in the German-speaking lands, um, but uh, by the late 18th and early 19th century uh, was definitely a very important part of German culture as well. Um, the thing about the salons is that they had always been a kind of women-led institution, and, and that gave them um, a certain character that other you know, kind of social intellectual gatherings, say, um, you know, official clubs or societies for literature, music, or general education in various subjects um, that were also popular in Germany um, wouldn't have um, that was sort of based on membership in a specific program and led by men. And the salon, you know, had this, uh, you know, mixed character of kind of a conversational uh, atmosphere and various activities that could happen there, but also the idea um, that it, it, it wasn't just a kind of private category, uh, gathering where you would talk about anything, but instead uh, salon hostesses would, would kind of take uh, care that there was some moderation, that there was some structure, that kind of everyone was sort of involved in the field of discussion and activity um, to keep things lively. And... In the case of the salon women that I talk about, uh, I focus on a few of them um, and give special attention to uh, Raël Levine, um, or Raël Levine Varnhagen, as she was later known when she was married, who was a central uh, salonier or, or salon hostess in Berlin um, right around the turn of the 19th century and a bit thereafter, uh, and was also a, a, a Jewish woman, um, at least uh, before her, her marriage and, and was was um, recognized as a particularly sort of um, free thinking part of Berlin society in part because of that. Um, and the thing about her salon is that it did have a, a big uh, literary emphasis um, and is a place where a lot of the texts of Goethe, including those that made it into leader, um, would have been received. And um, the th it was a place also uh, where the women who were involved, including um, Raël herself, uh, developed some reading strategies um, and some uh, ideas about how their lives related to Goethe's works um, that uh, both kind of really hard to express, I'm getting the German word, <laughs> that, that really sort of confirmed a lot of the message that was coming out um, of, of Goethe's text, but then really kind of over, overwrote that a bit too. Um, you see this, uh, uh, Raelle Levine talks um, in, in some of her uh, letters about um, how she kind of, you know, came to sort of try to model her life after Goethe, um, about how she felt that her character was sort of mixed in with his, that this was a part of her rhetoric. And another um, important literary uh, figure in Berlin life, Bettina von Arnim, um, who uh, was the um, sister of Clemens Brentano, another literary figure and uh, 
also uh, married Achim von Anim. Those two are the um, authors of Des Knaben Wunderhorn, if you know those texts from Mahler's settings later. And uh, she actually, um, when it came to Goethe's uh, famous novel, um, Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship, uh, she apparently took it to bed with her. Um, she, she made some extreme claims about identifying with one of the young um, women characters in the novel, Mignon. And so um, these women's, uh, they were important as kind of fans, as distributors of the texts. They were important um, in musical engagement with the texts. Um, in fact, I don't mention it in the book, but Bettina von Arnim also composed Lieder herself. Uh, and um, at the same time, the way that they handled them um, was kind of a, a bit unauthorized. Uh, it was a sort of uh, set of women's reading practices that weren't necessarily fully authorized by what was in the text themselves, almost kind of like the performances that I talk about in the book that um, also kind of can overwrite meanings or things seem to be prescribed by the works themselves. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, I found that really quite fascinating. I, the whole salon culture to me is something that I'm so glad that you talked about because it really does give us an idea of how important the um, not only the intellectual exchange was in salons, but just just the circles of influence that they engendered and just sort of knowing that um, this is where so many of these leaders were performed and people were talking about it. It really helps to explain um, some of the other ideas in your book to really get a, a better sense of what um, those salons were like. Um, another person that I found, another woman that I found that was really interesting was mm -hmm. Louise Hensel. She's not a composer I knew much about. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and why did you decide to focus on her in particular and not uh, maybe not another woman composer. What was special about her to you? Oh, yes, thank you. I, I don't actually um, have any evidence that she composed. She was a poet. Oh, excuse me, I'm um, sorry. But, no, it's okay. No, no, it's okay. Because it, uh, what what happens is um, is that she was involved uh, in a, a, a salon circle uh, at the uh, Elizabeth von Stegemann household in Berlin. And um, this uh, circle has been documented a bit before by, by a few scholars, and especially previously by, by Susan Ewens, um, who's, of course, written so extensively about everything to do about Lieder in, in, in over and over again in the 19th century. And um, in this salon, um, Louisa Hensel was part of a group, including also Wilhelm Müller, who wrote uh, uh, collaboratively a number of poems on the story of Dishina Millerin, the beautiful maid of the mill, uh, which um, I'm sure readers will will recommend in, uh, recognize instantly from Franz Schubert's later song cycle, uh, which is um, also titled Dishina Millerin, and which actually only uses texts from Wilhelm Müller, who was earlier present in that salon. 
The text that, that Miller made came from these earlier collaborative texts written by uh, a number of the participants together. And so I, I, I look at Hensel uh, not so much from the perspective of a composer, because it was another composer in the group who set her early uh, Schoenemüllerin texts uh, named Ludwig Berger. Uh, but I look at her as, as a kind of potential uh, collaborative uh, author and performer, um, because these poems that the members of the Salon were writing were actually roles for themselves. Um, so Miller was writing poems in the role of the Miller who uh, woos the Miller maid. And uh, another the young woman, the um, uh, Hedwig von Stegemann, she writes poems as um, the, the actual Miller maid, the object of all the attention, Rose. And then Louisa Hensel um, writes this pants role. She writes this other suitor uh, who you never hear about in Schubert, who's the gardener, um, who also is in love with the Miller maid. And uh, so her, her poems um, show her uh, kind of through this role uh, to be taking uh, a very isolated role, to be kind of keeping herself out of the main drama. And, and based on some other things that were going on in her life and some complicated romantic intrigues and also issues uh, with, with, with just her own self, um, it gives the impression that she's kind of playing through some of these personal and very gendered issues she's having in the salon scenario through the nature of this character. And so uh, through her texts and through that context and then through the, the musical settings that might have been available to her from her uh, friend in the salon, um, the composer, I, I talk about how she kind of works through her gender role in that situation. It's interesting to me that, you know, you're talking about, you know, they're working together to sort of collaboratively write these poems and almost like a little play, basically. Um, but some of these later do end up being performed outside of this salon environment onto the concert stage. And you, you spent a, a really interesting chapter kind of grappling with, um, you know, the difference between the performance by the people who are involved in the salon and sort of know all this romantic ideology stuff, and then people who might be encountering it as published work and even on the concert stage and sort of, you know, how do you deal with this, such an interior sort of art form when it's also a public art form. It's something that's getting published, that's getting performed in other venues, that's getting performed by people who don't know much at all about any of this. Can you talk about that sort of negotiation or that sort of tension that happens uh, as this art form is both something very private and something public? It's it's something that uh, was very important to me um, throughout this project uh, because um, there's a few things going on in this period. Um, Number one is, yes, uh, on the marketplace, uh, leader are, are, are very important um, because to the extent that they remain um, not in this period, uh, not always so difficult to perform, um, they only you know, need also a, a singer and a pianist. So in that case, uh, they're also sort of accessible in terms of instrumental means for the home. Um, they're a, a, a top vocal commodity on the sheet music marketplace. Um, and that implies, you know, one level of this publicization um, of the genre. But then um, traditionally, the, the account has been that it took a long time into the 19th century, really until the 1830s and, and even 
for full evenings of songs to big, big, big concert events to the 1860s, um, that uh, this earlier period of leader on the stage has been kind of overlooked because it was it was less full period of that practice. Um, but in my research, I looked instead of looking um, at the fact that it was just scarce, I, lo- I looked at kind of what the scarce examples themselves perhaps did to succeed or or did to kind of would tell us about this uh, public sphere for this private genre. And what I discovered uh, is that uh, on the first hand, um, public concert situations um, in the areas I was looking at in Berlin um, and uh, Leipzig, especially as kind of two comparative cities, that they um, often um, were places where um, poetic declamations often happened alongside primarily uh, instrumental and vocal musical programs, um, or sometimes happened by themselves with just a little bit of music. And you could see it already from the texts that weren't set to music uh, that there was what I call a certain poetic public sphere uh, in force. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, that that in public, uh, that you know, poems that sort of extolled, you know, the history of the nation or the morality uh, in, in wartime, for example, the morality of the troops or, um, you know, legends um, in a kind of ballad form uh, were very often spoken on the stage. And that these kind of intimate lyric poems, um, when not set to music, you don't find them at all uh, in these broader public contexts. And so interestingly, however, with certain musical strategies um, and First of all, maybe the first strategy of all just being set to music and sung, and then further than that, other constructions of genre and how orchestrated or not, or or whatever the case might be, that you find more of these intimate lyric poems um, appearing in the public sphere of the concert hall, uh, but always with something to compensate for their kind of slightness or nakedness or tenderness or uh, private character. That brings up another question you were talking about looking at concert programs to figure out, uh, you know, what sort of performance, public performance there was. And one of the hard parts of dealing with salon culture and with what you're talking about is is just finding sources for it. What what were your sources for this book besides, you know, the actual leader themselves? um, What sort of other um, archival material were you working with to try to come up with um, the information you needed? Uh, yeah, I was working with a range of materials um, closest to the, the scores themselves. Um, I was also taking care, for example, in the case of Goethe's friend, uh, Karl Friedrich Selter, uh, the autograph manuscripts of his songs, because they're so heavy on performance indications, perhaps more interesting from the aspect of, of performance markings for the use of the, the breath and um, things than, and, and the exact character with which a text must be sung. Um, than uh, anything to do with a very complex, you know, harmonic motion or other things that we find later in Schubert. Um, and then when it comes to sort of activities and specific performances and um, what was really going on, then, you know, anything that could be called from memoirs, um, published diaries, uh, didn't, have ac- didn't have sort of access to too many um, unpublished ones from the period. Um, some, some letters... And uh, also then there's, the, there's always that um, certain aspect of speculation. Um, and so 
at a certain point with the salon context, uh, it especially became a matter of kind of looking at the performance directions in various directions that a certain score or a text might take a player, might take a player in a certain social situation and offering those array of possibilities for analysis, um, as well as, of course, grounding everything as much as possible in the more documentary evidence. I want to turn to one last topic as we uh, sort of start to uh, wind up this discussion. Um, You know, there are times, um, and I'm sure you've heard this criticism as well, where performers and others will criticize musicologists because they feel like what we do is too abstracted from performance. Like, you know, why there's no, um, you know, people complain that there's not a lot of practical consideration in a lot of musicology. And your book, I have to say, it's a little dense and it's it's got a lot about German romantic philosophy in it. But yet you um, you really do confront that critique head on to uh, in the epilogue of your book and talk about how you think your insights might inform performance. And I thought that was a really important part of a book that is focusing on early performance of this repertoire, that you bring it around to, you know, what can performers today perhaps take from your work um, and um, to translate it into, you know, a performance context that's so different than the context that you are primarily interested in. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about those ideas there that you that you talk about at the end about how we can how this this um, this research can live outside of your book, basically, and outside of um, scholarship. Thanks so much for that question. <laughs> and it's, I have to preface what I have to say, sort of what I said in the book and um, things I've been looking at since, that this is a, this is a tough topic for me because on the one hand, I, I, um, I feel very convinced about many of the arguments that I've made here. And on the other hand, um, sometimes I feel even, uh, you know, with the kind of social and cultural analyses of performance that I that I make in the in the book, um, and even some of the possible pedagogical interpretive things that might come out of it, um, that there's something about the actual practice of rehearsing, studying, and then performing song now or, or any time, especially now, um, that uh, you know is so pragmatic. You know, it's it's about in the end, does the effect that comes off you know, from this collaboration of singer and pianist, does it, uh, does it reach, you know, does it, does it bring a sense of commitment and musical poetic fulfillment for the performers? And does it reach the audience, um, you know, in a way that's recognizably strong and successful? Um, and so that, that haunts me a little bit with what I'm about to say. But what I, what I do talk about um, in the epilogue uh, is um, a few things. And one of the cases concerns, um, I think, the, the modern pedagogical assumption with leader that the performer is really always inhabiting a role, much like one would inhabit a specific character in an opera. Um, and this is something that's espoused by some um, very prominent singers of leader, especially um, Ian Bostrich, uh, who is very well known for his song performances. Um, and it's something that, that you hear all the time in, in, in a pedagogical or a coaching situation. You know, what is your character? What is your role? 
why are you singing about this? Um, but it's not perhaps the only way. A few other uh, prominent um, singers, especially in the um, German context, uh, including uh, Christian Gerharder und uh, uh, sorry and uh, Christina Schaefer, uh, they talk um, a bit otherwise that that these poems, being lyric poems, um, that they have a texture of their own, that there might be an eye speaking, but it's not a very specific character de de depiction that one must make, um, and that there might be other options for reacting textually and emotionally successfully, but not always thinking, oh, I'm playing a role. And so um, I've explored this a bit uh, with performers in the case um, of a program that I did at the Vancouver International Song Institute. And um, it, it was an interesting thing to play with, but it wasn't the easiest, um, you know, to move away from this role um, portrayal into something else and to feel totally comfortable and successful, especially if one has always thought of this as, as playing a role. And so I hope it's one aspect that I hope um, performers and coaches and, and people will continue to explore uh, because very often there's so much in this poetry um, that's there uh, that doesn't necessarily lend itself um, to that aspect of performing the role playing aspect. And the second thing that I mention is, is kind of, you know, the, the way that we might present leader today uh, the way that we might uh, move a bit past uh, a leader avant or a song recital format that seems kind of staid into something that is maybe more flexible, uh, but nevertheless has, of course, uh, artistic integrity and a certain um, attractiveness about it. Uh, we don't want to just you know, do things just to create excitement that don't have that integrity. And uh, a few things that have been happening recently, I think, uh, really embody this well. In the case of the Romantic repertoire, um, a little bit past the period I discuss in the book is uh, Schumann's Songs like Dichterliebe from 1840. And it recently uh, was part of a big project uh, for the Spitalfields Festival um, in uh, England, where in, uh, it was kind of spatially dispersed across eight different houses um, in, in the city. And there were then different... Um, reinterpretations, rearrangements of the songs, so where the central material was there, uh, but they were performed uh, in various musical styles um, from Arabic musicians, soul musicians, um, Irish folk musicians, um, some jazz musicians, some classical musicians, and even um, Bengali uh, performers. And um, well, that's, of course, an extreme case of kind of moving away from treating the canonical repertoire to sort of sad and sacred, the kind of social movement that that creates and the ability to kind of connect leader, which are essentially just songs, however sort of, you know, uh, high a genre it might be, to these uh, other genres that we think of as more popular music or folk music, I think is very helpful. Um, and even with the older repertoire, uh, Philip Jaruski uh, has partnered with Christina Pluhar um, on a pro program called Music for a While on personal songs. And that also kind of mis mixes early music perform performance practices with jazz practices and also early music musicians with jazz musicians, um, which I think considering the improvisatory practice that we know from the 17th century of Purcell's time um, was also very convincing. And I saw that in Graz recently. Uh, so to conclude, I, I think um, as far as presenting leader, Part of what can be helpful for enlivening the genre is to remember its closeness to amateurs back in the early 19th century, to that broad marketplace, 
And that even though it can be tied to these high romantic ideologies and things that, like you said, can be very dense, and, and I do that in the book, uh, that at the same time, its special link to those things is based on its kind of simplicity and a, a, you know relative simplicity of means to other kinds of music, and sometimes very uh, very simple, even folk-like means in some of, of the earlier songs. Um, and so I think these, these connections between high and middle and low and the and the dense and the very accessible are important to do and to reinvigorate in a artistically um, uh, fulfilling way. Well, you mentioned that you saw something in Graz and the, and these other really that the other performance in England is really interesting as well. So it, it certainly seems that people are trying to find a way to be more um, maybe a little bit more creative about how they're performing later. And I hope that, uh, more performers start to think about what you have to say as well, because um, I think it opens up some really interesting ways of of performing this uh, repertoire that's not quite so um, maybe abstracted from um, uh, its roots, as you were saying. So um, I look, it'll be interesting to see if uh, more people take up your challenge <laughs> of of how to perform this. Yeah. Um, so just to, to end this, and, and you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your your book. But I'm sure it's you know, as all book projects, it ended a while for uh, ago for you. Um, and I'm wondering, what are you working on now? Uh, yeah, I'm working on two things right now. I'm trying to start one big thing, and uh, I'm working on a, a secondary project alongside of that. So perhaps I start with a secondary project. Um, I've been invited recently to participate in a conference at Oxford University uh, that Lauren Tunbridge um, and, uh, has organized called A Song Beyond the Nation. And uh, we're looking especially at uh, the cultural transfer of uh, poetic texts and also songs based upon them or vocal compositions based upon them um, across national borders um, and across languages and things like that. And so with respect to this topic, uh, I'm actually looking at a, a composition from 1930, which is not strictly a song in the lead sense. It's not really a member of that genre. It's actually a cantata, uh, but it takes up this trope of singing very strongly. Uh, it's called the Lied der Erinnerung, um, or uh, the English title just In Memoriam, uh, by a Viennese uh, composer, woman composer, Johanna Miller-Hermann, um, who was a, a professional um, professor in Vienna of music theory, actually, during the period. And it sets a text by Walt Whitman that we all know in America, uh, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, which is this great elegy to Abraham Lincoln. And so I'm looking at uh, you know, the musical aspects of this, and then, of course, also the, 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 the very interesting reception uh, context questions that come up, sort of, you know, what happens to this poem when it gets put uh, in a German translation? What happens to the subject of Abraham Lincoln in America when it gets performed in 1930s Vienna? Um, and what kind of cultural transfer um, does this text and music sort of uh, able to make back to America? Because she was also interested in, in, in getting some people to perform it back in the States where she had some connections. And um, further following from um, certainly connections between text and music, and also my interest in um, 
amateurs uh, in the realm of the lead, I'm moving on into a book project now that I'm calling Composing Philosophy. And it looks at instances across the long 20th century in which composers have uh, directly set um, either parts of major philosophical works, um, as in the case of Nietzsche's Zarathustra, just poems or, or sections, or, um, or other aspects of, of prose of philosophical works um, directly to music as a way of kind of being amateur readers of philosophy and, and as a way of also kind of popularizing those strands of, of, of famous philosophers' work um, in another artistic medium. And so I'm very excited about both of these. <laughs> well, they both sound fascinating. I'm particularly interested. I mean, they both sound great. But um, the idea of looking at how philosophy can be sort of popularized and uh, and circulated through song, that just sounds like such a great idea. So I'm looking forward to uh, reading that book when it comes out. Perhaps we can talk about it, too. Great. I look forward to that. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. <laughs>